0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about an ancient Assyrian king, or emperor, I suppose, if you'd like, Ashurbanipal who was the self-styled king of the universe. Uh, he ruled the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the, in the 7th century BCE. But, you know, also, if you ask him, the entire universe, which is quite an achievement, you would have thought. Uh, well over 2,700 years ago here, this bloke is kicking about Mesopotamia, modern-day sort of Iraq, Kuwait, bits of um, Syria, Turkey, Iran. And under his leadership, the Neo Assyrian Empire was the largest empire that the world had yet seen, and its cap its capital Nineveh was the very was very likely the largest city on the entire planet. Ashurbanipal very famous for having campaigned brutally and mercilessly against his enemies, particularly the Elamites, uh, who he really gave the business, as we'll talk about. But there's a lot of other stuff going on with this bloke. He, had had an ongoing and eventually very deadly feud with his brother whose name was Shemashem Ukin, uh, the king of Babylon. Uh, and in overseeing the largest empire yet seen on earth, he he had to put down revolts and rebellions, he had new lands to conquer, he had a huge population to administer. And uh, on top of all this, he was a he was a very big fan of himself, obviously, you know, referring to himself with titles such as, I mean, we've already covered King of the Universe, doesn't stop there. King of the Four Corners of the World, King of All Lands. This, like, really did have a, a fair few tickets on himself. And interestingly, the reason that we know so much about Ashurbanipal, um, uh, especially, you know, as he lived so long ago, is because of what is perhaps his most important achievement the Library of Ashurbanipal. This uh, was rediscovered in the 19th century after being buried. And it's filled. It was filled with with clay tablets that documented texts of all kinds, dictionaries to encyclopedias, storybooks even. Um, and it also offered a huge amount of insight into life into the life and times of, of a towering figure from the ancient world. I mean, I shouldn't even say ancient. Honestly, like if you want to get very technical, he's not from the ancient world because in the seventh century BCE, um, in this part of the world, we're still in the Iron Age. We're not actually in the in the period of, of ancient or classical history. We're still in the Iron Age, technically speaking. Uh, as the ancient Near East here is, is generally considered to, to have moved into the uh, in, in, move past the Iron Age in 550 BCE with the establishment of the uh, Achaemenid Empire. So, look, whatever the case, um, the, the library of Ashurbanipal, as the crowning achievement of Ashurbanipal himself, means we have an unusually detailed account of his reign. And, and as a result, there's a lot to get across today. Uh, before we start, of course, I want to thank alert listener Escalap who uh, suggested this as a topic. Great to learn a bit about this bloke, so thanks Escalap old mate, for, for the idea. Big fan. Uh, cheers very much. But let's get to it. Here we go. Let's get stuck in and learn about our new mate Ashburnapal, the king of the universe. We're going all the way back here. Going all, well, we're going a long bloody way back here today, let me tell you. We're going all the way back to 685 BCE, as I say, over 2,700 years here. Remember... We're before the common era here, BCE, so we're uh, we're counting years down. 684 comes after 685, not before, and as time passes, the year number gets smaller rather than bigger. So keep that in mind as the episode continues. Anyway, 685 BC, Ashurbanipal is born. He's the fourth son of King Haddon, who uh, at the time of Ashurbanipal's birth was the current king of the uh, Neo-Assyrian Empire. not sure why they were called kings, not emperors, but it doesn't matter too much. They were large, they were in charge um and in charge specifically speaking of the biggest empire uh, ever assembled on the planet to date. Now, it was also the most powerful in possession of an enormous military uh, armed with the very latest the bleeding edge of weapons technology. They had weapons made of iron. Can you imagine that that I mean you know we can kind of joke about it, but that actually was a very advanced. <laughs> A very advanced uh, type of weaponry, weaponry to have at this point. Iron weapons really were, as I say, at the forefront of uh, of military technology. Anyway, the Neo-Syrian Empire. It stretched from Egypt to Anatolia, around the Fertile Crescent, all the way through to modern-day Iraq to the top of the, uh, the the Persian Gulf. There, so quite a large, uh, quite well, maybe you know, not by today's standards in terms of some of the empires we've seen uh, throughout history. But but you know, again, at this point in 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 human history, this is the largest empire the world has ever seen. And like many empires, uh, it involved a tiered regional government system uh, that all ultimately answered to the central imperial government, uh, paying tribute in exchange for military protection. But there were various sort of vassal states, client kingdoms, whatever else that were all underneath the uh, the central authority of the neo-Assyrian uh, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So you know variously spread throughout the uh, the empire, there were other kingdoms, I guess you'd call them, whatever you want to call them, that uh, governed their specific areas. But again, they all paid tribute uh, to the neo-Assyrian uh, imperial throne if you want to look at it that way. And uh, as was some you know often the case with so many other empires as well, uh, vassals that had accepted subjugation into the empire were generally left to self-govern; they had a reasonable amount of, of, uh, of self-autonomy. While those that fought and were constantly, you know, rebelling and revolting were often violently put down, and the leaders expelled and replaced with Assyrian puppet governments, people that they, you know, knew were going to be loyal uh, again to the imperial court. So, it was, as I say, enormously powerful, well-organized. It was administered with a state-of-the-art communication system that keep it, kept all its leaders in constant contact. This state-of-the-art communication system, admittedly, did involve people riding on mules from place to place. But hey, it's 2,700 years ago, mate. They didn't have bloody WhatsApp, so give them a go here. Anyway, King Esarhaddon, he's in charge when young Ashurbanipal is born, the fourth son, as I say. But when Ashurbanipal is just 10 years old, his oldest brother, uh, and the heir to the empire, of course, dies, right? Now, Esarhaddon, he has to think about things after losing his eldest son, the crown prince, Irini. and and... He comes out with a new succession plan, all new all altogether, right? He he, he kind of splits his realm in two and divides it between Ashburnapal and one of his elder brothers, this bloke I spoke to, I spoke about before, Shamashum Ukin, right? Now, the third eldest brother missed out altogether. I don't know what was going on there. It seems that he might have been sickly and unfit to rule, but whatever it was, he gets diddly squat, while Ashburnapal the fourth son and Shamashum Ukin the um the second son, they both get a kingdom each. Now Makin got Babylon, while Ashurbanipal got the primary title of Assyria. But here's the thing, it's not altogether clear how Esarhaddon had actually sought to have power divided between his sons. It seems like he intended for Shamash-mukin to technically be a vassal of Ashurbanipal, but on the proviso that Ashurbanipal effectively offered Makin autonomy in real terms. Whatever the case, it wasn't a very neat division between the two brothers, and it caused some issues down the line, as we'll get to. Anyway, our mate Bernapal now is crown prince. Get around him. Can't wait to be king. Here he comes. Uh, he starts to prepare himself for leadership by accompanying his old man around, learning by observation, studying military strategy, even working as a spy master for his uh, for his dad as well. And he, he seemed to be a, quite a sharp young man, to be honest. You'll notice that a lot of today's episode will be, you know, pretty bloody complimentary of Ashurbanipal, and that's with good reason. I mentioned that we know a lot about this bloke because of the texts that were written about him in his library, in the library of Bernapal, Texts that were Written at his command, so yeah, I mean, obviously they're bound to cast the bloke in a positive light. So I guess you can take all this adulation with a grain of salt. But look, even if he was a bit kidding himself, he did seem up to the job. Um, and as his dad's uh, health began to fail in the late uh, 670s, here Ashurbanipal begins uh, begins to take on more and more responsibility, and of course, more and more authority as his uh, as his dad's health begins to fail. And in 669 BCE, uh, Esarhaddon, while he's off um, campaigning against the Egyptians, he finally dies, and Ashurbanipal is duly crowned the king. The king of what, you may ask? Well, ancient Mesopotamian kings didn't just stop at boring stuff like, you know, king of Assyria or, you know, king of Sumer and Akkad. No, they, I mean, yes, of course, they had those titles, but they also lavished themselves with plenty of other ones, as of I've, uh, I've already mentioned. For, for instance, the king of the universe. Uh, technically speaking, these words, the, the words used in this title could also be translated as uh, king of totality or, or king of everything, which is... Still a bit over the top. This title went all the way back to uh, King Sargon of Akkad, who ruled the Akkadian Empire um, around uh, 1500 years previously. But on top of all of this, right, there were titles like King of the Four Corners of the World and King of All Lands. I mean, you know, sure, but aren't they just included in the King of the Universe? But this is like going for a job interview and telling them about the time, you know, your your neighbors gave you five bucks when you're a kid to feed their cat for a week or they're on holidays. I mean, sure. Technically, it's a job, but it's not all that impressive compared to the other stuff on your CV, is it? I mean, if you're the king of the universe, that kind of goes without saying you're the king of everything else in it. Anyway, whatever the case, it wasn't clear if um, if Ashurbanipal adopted all of these titles as soon as he was crowned. In any case, by a, a, at least you know a couple of years into his reign, he's calling himself all these things and more. So it's safe to say that he was a big fan of himself. But anyway, look, he's crowned, uh, as is his brother, Shamash Shumukin, uh, who goes off to rule Babylon as their father planned. But it's pretty clear, even with Shamash Shemukin technically being the king of Babylon, uh, it's pretty clear that Ashurbanipal is the de facto ruler of, of more or less the entire the the entire Neo syrian Empire, including his brother's lands. He assumes more or less full power over the entire empire. But he doesn't have time to rest on his laurels, let me tell you this, because there are rumblings of dissent and rebellion to the southwest in Egypt. Now, Egypt had been conquered very, you know, relatively recently here by Esaeddon, and the pharaoh uh, Taharqa, he had escaped capture during this campaign, and he had fled south into Cush. Now, in 669... Taka- uh, Taharqa was back, right? This, uh, this pharaoh in exile, he's back. He was stirring up rebellion uh, against the new Assyrian overlords. had died before he could deal with this emerging situation, as I mentioned. So Ashurbanipal, he decides, listen, not going to ta- no, I'm not going to take any of the guff from these Egyptians here. He's up to the task. He gathers together the mighty Assyrian army and picks up right where his old man left off, marching into Egypt in 60- 667 BCE and absolutely crushes this rebellion into the dirt. And it was during this campaign that Ashurbanipal showed just how brutal and ruthless that he would be for the remainder of his military career, his army sacked city after city as they put down this revolt. Any city that resisted the Assyrians was mercilessly put to the fire and the sword by this bloke, Ashurbanipal. And as I mentioned before, once the rebellion had been crushed, uh, Ashurbanipal filled out the Egyptian regional government with Egyptians that he knew would be loyal to the Assyrian seat of power as a sort of puppet client state. However, the rebellion, even after it was uh, crushed the first time, it flared up again a few years afterwards, and the regional government proved unable to deal with it, despite they were, the fact that they were loyal to the Assyrians. They weren't able to deal with this uh, with this rebellion. And so Ashurbanipal had to march all the way back down into Egypt to put down the rebellion once and for all, and this time he sacked the city of Thebes for the third time in under 10 years with uh, these ongoing conflicts that were happening in Egypt. And uh, after having done this, he left Assyrian garrisons uh, behind in Egypt to support the puppet government. And there were no more revolts from this point onwards. As, although as time passed, uh, we'll talk about this a bit later on, Assyrian influence in the region did dwindle significantly. But the important thing here is, right, that all doesn't matter because the important thing is Asher bernapal has come out of the gate swinging. As a young king, as a new king, right, his campaign against the Egyptian rebels set a very, very firm precedent for how he would handle his military affairs for the rest of his reign. Now, speaking of military affairs, there was one uh, sort of campaign or a series of campaigns, I guess I should call it, uh, that, that defined uh, the military career of Ashur-Bernapal, and that was, the, that was the series of campaigns against Elam. As the Egyptian campaign was underway in 665, Elam launched a surprise attack on Babylonia. Now, Elam was a kingdom on the east bank of the Persian Gulf, while Babylonia was just north of Sumer at the Gulf's northern edge. So Elam and Babylonia kind of were were, were neighbor states. Babylonia technically part of the Neo-Syrian Empire, Elam not part of it. The Elamite king, a bloke whose name was Ertak, he launched this attack against Babylonia and therefore against the Neo-Syrian Empire more broadly. Um, And you won't be surprised to learn that Ertak was crushed and driven back into Elam once uh, you know, was, was able to disengage from the, 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 the situation in Egypt and come and deal with what was going on with the Elamites. Now, Urtak didn't survive his encounter with Ashurbanipal; He died short, or shortly after his retreat back into Elam. And after Ertak died, he was replaced by a bloke named Tumen. Now, Tumen tried to calm things down a little bit to secure his position as king, right? Because obviously, it was a, you know, it was a tenuous situation. They've just invaded this uh, much more powerful neighbour, and they're in big trouble. Truman comes in, he's like, now listen here, I'm going to be the steady hand on the tiller and guide this kingdom forward. And he did this by trying to kill three of Ertak's sons, all of who had a claim to the throne. Interesting thing to calming down the political situation in Elam, I suppose, but it didn't work because the sons escaped from Elam. They fled into, if you'll believe it, Assyria where the very politically canny Ashurbanipal welcomed them, just in case they might end up being useful later on. They are the sons of the king that he has just vanquished, but now there's a new king in town, and these three blokes, who all have a very legitimate claim to the Elamite throne, all of a sudden, they're being welcomed with open arms, you know, into the court of their former enemy, because Ashburna has has a sneaking suspicion that they, uh, that, that, you know, that these kids might come in handy a little bit later on. But for now, he goes back to managing, managing his realm, putting down rebellions here and there, taking care of business, the odd revolt, the odd invasion, whatever else, uh, looking, after, looking after his empire, nothing too special. But as we move out of the 660s and into the 650s, remember we're counting backwards, a new threat emerges to the leadership. Remember Shamash Shumukin, the elder brother who had been sidelined to Babylon, who was, you know, supposed to be a virtually autonomous king, but had been reduced more or less to a mere vassal? Oh, mate, he's on the move now, let me tell you this. He's a snake in the grass. He is sick of being his younger brother's vassal. It's like your bloody younger brother making you play as Player 2 on the Xbox. Absolutely not. That's the elder sibling's position. Everyone knows that. Thank you very much. But in, so, so, so as a result of this, in 653... Shamash Shamakin, he decides enough is enough, and that he wants to take the fight to his brother. He wants to claim that player one controller port for himself, and he begins to do this in a very interesting way indeed. Remember back how in 665, right, the Elamites they invaded Babylonia, which is technically the area that Shamash uh, Shamakin was was the king of, right? He now approaches the Elamite king, that bloke Tuman, right, and he says, "Listen here, mate." You don't like the bloody you don't you don't like the the Assyrians, even though I'm technically part of the Assyrian Empire. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of old Ashurbanipal as well. So listen to me. Are you interested in joining forces and going after my elder brother with me? You send in your armies, you distract him, you harry him, whatever else. Right? Start harassing him a bit, see where it goes from there, and then I can jump in afterwards once you've got the uh, once you've got things started. Now Tumen goes, mate. This is a terrific idea. Love it. I'll see what I can do. A lot of us here we bloody hate the Neo Assyrian Empire, and we'd love to see some change. So uh, I'll, I'll see what I can organise. So. In 653, the Elamites, they attack the Neo-Assyrian Empire again, and they really don't seem to have learned their lesson here, because Ashburnipal, he turned the military might of the Assyrians against the Elamites, and the poor bastards felt the full wrath of the ruthless Assyrian king. Ashburnipal overwhelmingly defeats Tumen and the Elamites. Chuman uh, is killed in the decisive battle of Ulai, which took place right next to the Elamite capital of Susa. And with the Elamite king dead and their capital so close, Ashurbanipal doesn't waste the opportunity. He goes well. Bloody hell, we're all here. We may as well. He conquers Elam. He conquers Susa just for good measure. And then, remember those sons of the former king that had been holding on to since they defected after Tuman seized power. He installs two of them as the leaders, given they're now loyal to Assyria, seeing as they've been living over there with them for so long. An absolute political masterstroke here. Not only has he reversed this invasion of Assyria into a successful conquest of Elam itself, he has now put people loyal to him who have a legitimate claim to the throne of Elam as well. And I tell you this, he is bloody well pleased with himself by his efforts. Let me tell you, in chronicling his conquest of Elam, Here's what Ashurbanipal wrote about himself. Remember, don't forget this. Like the onset of a terrible hurricane, I overwhelmed Elam in its entirety. I cut off the head of Tumen their king, the haughty one, who plotted evil. Countless of his warriors I slew. Alive with my hands, I seized his fighters. With their corpses, I filled the plain about Susa, as with Baltu and Ashagu, which were types of shrubs, which were, you know presumably very abundant in this area. Their blood I let run down the Ulai River. It's water. I dyed red like wool. However, for all that, he's missing one thing, a very important detail. Shamashum Ukin's involvement in the Elamite attack on Assyria remains a secret. His treachery is not uncovered and Ashurbanipal doesn't realise that he has been betrayed by his own brother. McKin goes back to the drawing board after the failure of the Elamite uh, invasion here and uh, his, you know with his position not revealed, he instead starts to put out feelers towards other different allies that might want to rise up with him against Ashurbanipal. Now, he finds some because let me tell you this, not only is Babylon itself sick of Ashurbanipal, there are plenty of conquered Elamites who resent their new imperial overlord and add to that other parts of the empire where dissent was already brewing. This empire is large, it is sprawling, and Ashburnipal is doing a bloody good job keeping it together as it is, but there are no shortage of people who have got a bit of an issue with being vassals of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and uh, and McKin starts to sniff him out, right? and he does a good job of rounding up allies for his uprising. And in 652 BCE, as a result of Shemashimakin's treachery, the Neo-Assyrian Empire is thrust into civil war, as Shemashimakin rises up against his brother Asher Bernapal. And just in case you didn't already guess, Asher Bernapal was not very pleased with this at all. Now how do we know? Because here is what he wrote. From over two thousand seven hundred years ago, another fraternal spat, just like you know, just like when me and my brother Oliver used to fight over who got to play on the Xbox all the, well, I say all those years ago, you know, fifteen years ago rather than 2700 years ago but it goes to show that these things are timeless it is part of the human condition siblings duking it out for supremacy although you know i will admit that there was a a fair bit less blood and guts when oliver and i were fighting over the xbox controller compared to you know asher bernapal and Mukin fighting over control of their respective kingdoms anyway here's what asher bernapal had to say In these days, Shemashemukin, the faithless brother of mine, whom I had treated well and had set up as king of Babylon, every imaginable thing that kingship calls for, I made and gave him soldiers, horses, chariots. I equipped and put into his hands cities, fields, plantations, together with the people who lived therein, I gave him in larger numbers than my father had ordered, but he forgot this kindness I had showed him and planned evil. Outwardly with his lips, he was speaking fair words while inwardly his heart was designing murder. The Babylonians, who had been loyal to Assyria and faithful vassals of mine, he deceived speaking lies to them. And how did the civil war go? Well, despite the robust coalition of rebels that Shamash-Mukin put together for the fight, He still got his ass handed to him. Don't mess with Ashurbanipal. He marched on Babylon. He besieged and sacked its cities. He laid waste to the armies that stood against him, and even the city of Babylon itself fell in 648 BCE and was plundered mercilessly by the Assyrians, ending the war. But hey, don't just take my word for it. Again, here's what Ashurbanipal himself had to say about the campaign. Asur, Sin, Shamash, Adad, Bel, Nabu, Ishtar of Nineveh, the Queen of Kidmuri, Ishtar of Arbella, Urta, Nergal, and Nusku, these were all gods, who marched before me, slaying my foes, cast Shamash Shemukin, my hostile brother, who became my enemy, into the burning flames of a conflagration, and destroyed him. As for the people who hatched these plans for Shemashimukin, my hostile brother, and did the evil, but who were afraid of death and valued their lives highly, they did not cast themselves into the fire with Shemashimukin, their lord. Those of them who fled before the murderous Iron Dagger, famine, wanton, flaming fire, and found a refuge, the net of the great gods, my lords, which cannot be eluded, brought them low. Not one escaped. not one sinner slipped through my hands the chariots coaches palanquins his concubines the goods of his palace they brought before me as for those men and their vulgar mouths who uttered vulgarity against us who am i god and plotted evil against me the prince who fears him i slit their tongues and brought them low the rest of the people alive by the colossi between which they had cut down Sennacherib, the father of the father who begot me at that time I cut down those people there as an offering to his shade. Their dismembered bodies I fed to the dogs, swine, wolves, and eagles, to the birds of heaven and the fish of the deep. And so that was the end of the treacherous Shemashimukin and his revolt, although it wasn't the end of the trouble with the Elamites, as we'll come to. But what a way to tell your story, Certainly we don't only have, you know, very certainly we don't just have an unparalleled insight into the life and times of this man. We also have a pretty unparalleled insight into what his entire deal was and how he liked to rule his kingdom and crush his enemies. I want to pause the stories of, of, of Carnage and Slaughter here to talk about the reason that we have such a detailed account of so much of Ashburnipal's reign. And, and it is, of course, what I said before, this monumental library he created, the Library of Ashurbanipal. Now, I couldn't find exact dates to its construction. It seems to have been a lifelong project for the king who, despite his brutality on the battlefield, seemed to be very interested in, in, in intellectual pursuits like literacy and history and whatever else. Throughout his reign, he sent scribes throughout his realm uh, to make copies of text on all sorts of subjects and employed even more scribes back in Nineveh itself, in the city, who wrote out text after text after text onto clay tablets to stock the library. Now, obviously, this is well before paper and and even materials like vellum or papyrus aren't in use by the Assyrians here. Instead, the texts were written in cuneiform, which is an ancient writing system that used a stylus to impress markings into clay. Now, the library held around 30,000 texts on the most diverse topics imaginable, writings on, on astronomy, mathematics, medicine, history, collections of folk tales, legends and myths, stories of heroes and villains. There were texts on religion, on magic, fortune telling, all sorts of things. And we owe our knowledge of ancient stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, other ancient tales besides, to Ashurbanipal's great interest in literature. There were even dictionaries in this library, dictionaries to uh, various languages, Sumerian, Akkadian, whatever else, uh, to aid in translation. But the bulk of the library consisted of political documents, legislation, treaties, contracts, legal records, agricultural reports, other administrative texts, which, of course, offer us a very sort of you know meat and potatoes, everyday look at what life in this ancient civilization was about, as indeed did the enormous written history of Ashurbanipal's reign, which, you know, while not being completely comprehensive, still offered this unparalleled insight into not only the life of this man, but also the times in which he lived. The library was the first organized repository of texts and literature that the world had ever seen. And as I say, it is more or less the crowning achievement of Asher in and his reign. Even he seemed to think so. And, you know, that's including all the conquering and whatnot that he got up to as well. He did value this uh, this library very highly indeed and what a legacy he secured for himself by doing it we know way more about him and his life than we do most people from this period in history just because he you know was sure to write stuff down and you may wonder be, uh, it's a good question how the library survived for so long for us to be able to study it today stuff that is that old doesn't tend to last all that long and doesn't you know doesn't tend to weather the storm of uh, of time. But the reason all of these texts are still around today, the reason that, you know, the library actually survived is because, if you'll believe it, people tried to destroy it. Check this out, right? In 612 BC, years after the death of Ashburnipal, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh was attacked by a coalition of Assyria's enemies, and this time they were successful in taking the city. And they sacked it, just as Ashburnipal had sacked their cities, and attempted to burn down the palace that held the library. But here's the thing. When you expose clay to high temperatures, you don't always destroy it, you bake it, making it stronger and more resilient to damage. As the fire tore through the palace, obviously destroying the palace, it helped to preserve the texts in the library, not just by baking the clay, but also, after it had done so, by burying the clay and the library itself in rubble from the palace, in the ruins, right? And these ruins. They lay hidden for thousands of years, untouched, until they were uncovered in the mid-19th century by the archaeologist Austin Henry Layard. And as a result of this discovery, today we have a much greater insight into this period of, in history. Over, you know, as I say, over 30,000 texts or fragments of texts have survived. Much of this collection, of course, is in the possession of the greatest and most famous thieves' guild in history, the British Museum. But this is why we know so much about this bloke and why I can give you such a detailed account of his life, despite the fact that it happened, you know, pushing 3,000 years ago. It's because people actually attempted to destroy the palace that held these records and inadvertently ensured their survival through to an era where we could pick them apart with, you know, modern archaeological practices and learn so much uh, about human history in this way. So... If you want to start to secure your legacy and have a tin pot his- history podcast talk about you in 2,700 years, start writing stuff down and maybe do it on clay tablets too, in case, you know, someone sets fire to your house. Anyway, back to our story here. Asher he's just put down the rebellion started by his treacherous brother, but that's not the end of it, as I say. Because after installing a new governor of Babylon, again, someone who would be properly loyal to Assyria... Ashurbanipal now had to deal with the growing discontent with Assyrian rule in Elam. It seems the Elamites really, really didn't want to learn their lesson here, because once again, dissent brewed away under the surface with various rebellious leaders stirring up trouble amongst the unhappy Elamite population who didn't like being part of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And as the years passed, more and more of Elam grew ready to revolt against Ashurbanipal until finally, in 647 BCE, it came to a head and Ashurbanipal once again invaded Elam to put down this revolt. and it was not a pretty campaign. I mentioned before that the Assyrians were essentially a military superpower. and while you know you can kind of laugh at that laugh at that being due to them, you know, due to stuff like them having iron weapons, it meant that they were an overwhelmingly powerful enemy. And as Ashurbanipal's and his army swept into Elam again, as was typical of them, they put the whole area to The fire and the sword. Areas that resist, they were sacked, razed, burnt to the ground, and destroyed. While those who lacked the courage but perhaps didn't lack, I don't know, a brain in their head and switched sides and immediately began to pay tribute to the Assyrians in order to stave off their depredations were largely spared. Ashurbanipal went from city to city, raising, burning, pillaging, but nowhere were the depredations more brutal and severe than when it came to to the Elamite capital of Susa. Ashurbanipal seemed to take a savage pleasure from utterly destroying Susa, describing in close detail the way that he and his army raised this city. Susa, the great holy city, abode of their gods, seat of their mysteries, I conquered. I entered its palaces. I opened their treasuries where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed, I destroyed. The ziggurat of Susa. I smashed its shining copper horns. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated. I exposed to the sun, and I carried away their bones towards the land of Ashur. I devastated the provinces of Elam, and on their lands I sowed salt." This guy just really did not have any chill. I mean, I I, I don't know why anyone like you read that. You're like, why why would we ever stand up against this bloke? Just let him. Let, you know, let's just be part of the Neo Assyrian Empire. It can't be that bad. I don't want to have I don't want to have him writing that sort of stuff about me and where I live. Bloody hell! But here's a really interesting part, right? After a, after the Elamites had been defeated again, after their cities and lands had been so utterly ruined by the Assyrians here, Ashmanapal didn't even bother to reincorporate Elam back into his empire. Because why would he? He'd left it a bloody wasteland. It's almost as if he'd sacked Elam just to send a, send a message to any other potential rebels throughout the Neo Assyrian Empire. He says, you can choose, he says, quiet dissatisfaction under my rule or utter destruction at my hands. I'll leave you as I left the Elamites. He didn't even bother to, re- to bring Elamite back under his control after destroying it, Because that's not what he was there to do. That's not what he was there to do. He was there to impress his authority upon the rest of his realm. And I'll tell you what, it worked. Because the Neo-Assyrian Empire was fractured. It was falling apart. And it was only through sheer force of will that Ashurbanipal could keep it together with this overwhelming military presence in the areas that, that attempted, I should say, to rise up against him. He fought other campaigns in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, or to, the, or to the north in Anatolia, fighting off other invaders. He spent most of his reign fighting one enemy or another, both offensively and defensively, both internal and external. But time comes for us all, and eventually his reign would come to an end. Interestingly, however, especially considering his life is so well documented, we know little of his death, even its exact year is a matter of debate. The detailed chronicles of Ashurbanipal's life end in 636 BCE. It's thought because his health had begun to fail him, and so these chronicles were put on the back burner. So the end of his reign and his life aren't hugely clear to us, which is a stark contrast to the most, most of the rest of his life, which, of course, we have such a clear and detailed account of. It's thought that Ashurbanipal died in unknown circumstances, possibly in ill health, in 631 BCE, although some sources claim instead it was perhaps a few years later. But he was succeeded by his sons, first Ashur Etil Ilani, uh, who seemed to have been a bit of a weak and ineffective king, and then when he died, Sin kun took the throne. Sin kun would end up being the second last king of Assyria as the empire crumbled apart during the reign of his son, Ashur Bernapal's grandson, Ashur Ubalat II. Ashurbanipal's death hastened various revolts throughout the empire and ashur etilanis weakness as king also also catalyzed the enemies of, as- of Assyria both again internal and external various re- rebellions and revolts broke out including from within the Assyrian army itself meaning the empire began to collapse in on itself in 612 BCE as i mentioned an anti-Assyrian coalition captured and raised Nineveh which was don't forget the largest city on earth at this point And within three years of the fall of its capital, the Neo-Assyrian Empire collapsed with the Battle of Haran in 609, effectively wiping out the remnants of its army. The delicate balance of imperial rule over so many people and so much land was fatally upset with the death of Ashurbanipal. And just over 20 years after his death, the greatest empire that the world had yet seen crumbled into dust. Eventually, Assyria itself was conquered, this time by the Persians in the mid-6th century, and it became part of the Achaemenid Empire, but under Ashurbanipal, the Neo-Assyrian Empire was the largest empire to have ever existed to this point, with an enormous capital, the largest city on earth, boasting 120,000 inhabitants. I mean, look, back then, you know, that was pretty big, all right? Give him give a bit of credit. The Neo-Assyrian Empire, it reached its apex under Ashurbanipal and his strong and ruthless approach to leadership. And his interest in literacy and literature means that almost three millennia later, we're still able to understand and share his story. He held together an empire that was on the brink of crumbling. The revolts and the rebellions he spent his reign fighting proved too much for his successes, as they just were not equal of Ashurbanipal and his ability to keep his empire whole. Not that we need to tell him that, the bloke certainly didn't lack self-assurance as we've seen, but just in case you need a little more convincing, just in case you don't believe me yet that Asher Bernapal really did have a fair few tickets on himself, I want to leave you with an inscription that survived to the modern era, one that serves as something of an introduction to the bloke, a summary of his achievements, and a bit of a snapshot of how he viewed himself, along with all of his titles. <coughs> Asher Bernipal, the mighty king King of the universe, king of Assyria, king of the four regions of the world, king of kings, unrivalled prince who, from the upper to the lower sea, holds sway and has brought in submission at his feet all rulers. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Ashurbanipal, the king of the universe. Well, I say king of the universe. Not quite, admittedly. You know, certainly not even really bloody king of the moon at this point. So maybe you should have set your sights a little bit lower. But he certainly did a bloody good job at holding together an empire that, as I say, was on the way out. And uh, it is incredible that, you know, all these years later we can sit here and tell his story in such detail just because he had the foresight to... Write things down, you know, a a, a really, a really incredible story, if for nothing else just because of how old it is. Anyway, thanks once again to Iskallap who sent it in as a suggestion. If you'd like to do the same, the best place to do this is, of course, at the website, halfhourshistory.net. There's a contact form there. But the other way to do it, if you'd like, is you can join the Discord. Uh, You can go to bit.ly slash join Riley's Discord. If you scroll down, there's a bunch of channels, but there is one uh, devoted, or there's a a series of channels devoted to Half House History. You can get updates as to when the latest episodes are coming out, suggest topics, or indeed just discuss the episodes uh, with other fans. It's a great place to come and hang out, and this is where Iskallap sent in the suggestion. It's one of the places that i check the most regularly for uh, for updates and whatever else when it comes to a topic suggestion so please come and join bit.ly slash join riley's discord uh, plenty of other half history fans there to chat with uh you know if this takes your fancy so please do that if you'd like uh, special thanks to all the people supporting me on patreon patreon.com slash half history if you want to support me there get access to uh bonus uh, content behind the scenes stuff show notes uncut episodes all the farts and burps that you uh, you could ever hope to hear on the uh, on the outtakes there uh and a special thank you to all of you all of those who are uh, you know continuing to support me week in a week out thanks so much for that uh apart from that please tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent because uh, it is great to see gotta get those numbers up as ever gotta get the numbers up mate get seeing those uh, the listener numbers continue to grow every week it uh it, it brings joy to my heart my friend so thank you to everyone who's out there spreading the good word of Half-House History. Appreciate it a lot. Anyway, that's that for this week. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Be back next week with more half as History. But until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Abu Ben Adem, who asks, How come so many ancient sculptures are broken? Were ancient sculptors just really clumsy?